This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 51. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. This is the podcast that is designed to help you reach the third stage of digital transformation success. So whether you're looking for best practices on the process, people, technology, strategy, project management, or any other aspect of digital transformation, uh, this podcast is for you. And this is uh, the whole focus of of our podcast here. So thanks for being here today. Uh, welcome to all the audience members here in our third episode of 2022. Um, got an exciting show for you today. We have a, a few things we're going to cover. Uh, first of all, we're going to cover at the beginning of the segment, uh, we'll start off by talking about some some hot topics and tech trends, uh, talking a little bit about uh, AI as it relates to COVID. We'll talk about banking in the cloud and some other things as well. So we'll sort of do a, a hodgepodge of trends and topics related to digital transformation here in the opening segment. Um, later in the show, we're going to have uh, Professor Norbert Granau. Or Granau. I, I feel like I'm mispronouncing his name. He's German, so I feel like I'm using a French pronunciation of a German name. So I'm sure I'm, I, I feel bad. I'm probably mispronouncing his name. Uh, but it's Professor Norbert Grenau, <laughs> to the best of my pronunciation abilities. Uh, he's a professor at University of Potsdam in Germany, and he's also a consultant, and he also does a lot of research as part of his uh, academic and consulting background. And we're going to have him on the show talking about just general digital transformation benchmarks and research and trends, things that he's seeing and finding and learning in his research over 20 years of studying digital transformations and ERP implementations. And i um, excited to have him on the show to talk through what he's seeing in his research, just to add some quantitative academic uh, flavor uh, to some of the things we talk about on the show. And then also just to, I do want to unpack a little bit with him uh, some of the geographical differences in what to expect in digital transformations or, or how digital transformations vary from region to region throughout the world. We have a global audience here that listens to this podcast. Uh, we at the Third Stage team have a global team, so it's always interesting to kind of get that global perspective of how how things are different and how are they similar in different parts of the world, depending on where you are. So we'll be excited to have him on the show here later today. And then uh, finally, uh, we're going to have Michelle Weiss on the show later today, and she's going to be, uh, she's actually a senior manager at Third Stage Consulting. Uh, she works with a lot of our, our Latin American clients, among others, and she's going to be on the show talking about how to select the right enterprise technology for your digital transformation. So we'll get some tips from her on some of the recent uh, software evaluation selection projects that she's been involved with. Uh, so stay tuned for that. We're, we're excited to have her on the show as well. I think this is uh, the first time that either of these guests have been on our on our podcast. So uh, we're, we're starting off the new year with a bang and, and some exciting new guests. But before we get to our um, our guest, uh, Kyler, what are some of these uh, trends you're seeing and some of the recent topics that you wanted to chat about here in this opening segment. Yeah, so I wanted to follow up on kind of the fintech conversation we had last week. 
um, and talk a little bit about that migration for banks specifically in the banking industry to cloud technologies, whether it's they build their own, whether it's they're using Amazon or Microsoft or Google as partners in helping that cloud migration. Um, I came across an interesting statistic that I wanted to get your reaction to because it's a little confusing to me. So Bank of America was profiled in a few of these articles and they actually saved $2 billion a year in part by building its own cloud. And I know we kind of talk a lot about the costs of the cloud and is it more cost effective a solution. So I wondered if I could just get your reaction to kind of that statistic of saving that amount of money and maybe just ask you, do you feel like that is the reason that banking is, is trying to move to a cloud, that end user experience, obviously, um, move to a cloud solution? Um, you know, is, is cost savings a big motivator there? Yeah, I, I think cost savings can be a big motivator. Um, in fact, that's one of the things I want to talk about with uh, the professor, uh, Professor Norbert, when he's on the show later today. I do want to ask him about some of the cost uh, implications of cloud and, and some of the things he's saying there. Um, so we'll come back to that thought, but I do think uh, cost optimization is, is got to be a consideration for banks as well as any other larger organization with some scale uh, to them. But I also think it could be a uh, privacy, a data privacy, data security uh, type of thing as well. Um, I would suspect due to regulatory issues and or um, just some of the different governments throughout the world in terms of how they regulate banks, there's probably some limitations on what you can and can't do with, with some of that sensitive financial data, in addition to some of the privacy laws like GDRP in Europe and other parts of the world where data privacy in general is being more closely regulated. So I have to think it's it's somewhat of a data privacy and or cybersecurity uh, issue as well. That's pure speculation. I'm not a banking or financial services expert by any means, uh, but I would think based on what we're seeing in other industries, that's that's probably the case here as well. Absolutely. It's just, it's very interesting because we had in 2019, um, Capital One suffered one of the largest data thefts that ever happened um, and settled lawsuits for $80 million in strengthening security. And it still is continuing to move towards that cloud solution. So I wonder, like, obviously, banks have never been known from a consumer operation standpoint to provide top-notch experience, even though I will say Capital One, I would say, is probably on the forefront of more of that immediate type of, of transactions. But continuing to move to a solution that, you know, is, is so risky, it seems like cost might be part of those, those motivators, um, as well as, as just overall customer experience. Yeah, I agree. The other industry that has had an interesting experience for the last two years is retail. So I found some retail trends and again, wanted to kind of talk to you about a few of the software options that retailers now are utilizing. We obviously know that they have gone to a, a huge e-commerce or, or hybrid option, um, but they also are investing in softwares that kind of showcase where there are in-store bigger crowds or kind of heat mapping as far as those risks that can go associated with that. So I wanted to share some of those platforms. Is this uh, looking at heat maps of, of where people or customers are physically in a store or where the heaviest traffic patterns are? Or is that is that what you're referring to? Yes. So it's called Voxel 51. And basically what the platform does is it alerts 
staff to there's too many people and there's a high risk situation within indoor shopping. And it's utilized um, to make sure that that there's safety and security uh, within a face-to-face shopping experience. Um, so I thought that was interesting. We've seen something similar with Amazon where they're doing utilizing those types of AI functions to take temperatures and to you know mitigate mitigate and scale any sort of risks in their actual workforce to make sure they can get product to their customers, which obviously is their main model. Um, but I wanted to get kind of your feedback on on that trend and and will we continue to see kind of the these health almost types of software systems move into mainstream industries such as retail? Well, uh, I, I have two sort of uh, very distinct responses. To that one is more on based on a personal my personal opinion of of big brother type technologies like that. Uh, but maybe I'll save that for another time um, and, and encourage the audience to go read you know 1984 by George Orwell, and that'll share my thoughts on on uh, what I think about big you know big tech or or tech uh, um, tracking people's movement and behavior and things like that. Um, but if I set aside my personal views of that, um, I think that, um, you know, there's certainly, I, I think what it's doing is it's showing another, yet another use case for how technology can be used uh, for public good or public benefit or or intended public benefit, I should say, just as a, disqual- or as a qualifier. Um, but I think that's one of the key things is just making sure that, um, you know, you leverage technology where it makes sense. And certainly I think from a business perspective, if you're a retailer, I think it makes a lot of sense to deploy these technologies, um, whether you like it or not, simply because there's so much regulation around this. And the more that, I think the more that retailers and other um, uh, organizers or or people that are impacted by public gatherings, the more people that can sort of take the matter in their own hands to manage this and to mitigate the risk of the uh, the health risks of, of having people close together. Um, at least in the short term, hopefully not the long term, but at least in the short term, uh, I think that can only help um, prevent the need to want to have more uh, draconian, you know, government uh, regulations to to manage that for you. So I think it's just a good way to sort of proactively get ahead of that. Um, hopefully this is all a moot point, and in two or three years that technology is, has no use case because we don't need it. But um, based on where we are today, who knows? I I don't think any of us expected to still be talking about this two years later, but here we are talking about it two years later. So it sounds like uh, it's time for technology to provide another solution that might help. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's a great segue to some of the other trends that I've seen specifically within the AI industry and utilizing that te- technology for COVID-19. So a new AI software actually um, nearly predicted Omicron's structure, which I don't know if you're um, familiar with trying to um, predict a, a variance structure, but it apparently it has over 200,000 known structures that are mapped. And then this specific protein is what makes it so um, easily transmitted. So basically what they're saying future state for this AI software is they're able to utilize that to see and predict different variants for COVID-19 but also in um, our top 10 trends for technology, we see the opportunity to actually influence DNA um, when that moves into healthcare and by spinning different DNA strands to actually match proteins that will be more resilient to any sort of disease or um, virus type of thing. 
So definitely some some huge movement there in um, that area. And I know we talked a lot about health trends, but I, I wondered, Eric, you know, is this something that in the healthcare industry, you obviously help a lot on the system side, but have you had those conversations with your healthcare clients or network about kind of emerging technologies and what that might look like for their future state products or services? Um, I have not directly, but I, I know we have team members that have um, had more direct frontline conversations with some of these uh, healthcare clients. Um, one thing that just sort of bridging the um, conversation you just had that you just brought up about the retailer uh, technology that allows you to sort of show that heat map of where there's concentrations of people. I wonder if there's a way to combine, kind of leverage that in the same way for, for healthcare providers where they can see whether, regardless of whether or not they fully understand the 200 or $250,000 or 250,000, is it very variance of Omicron or uh, what, what is it? 200,000. Would you say that was? It is 200,000 different structures. Different structures. So basically, it's like process mapping, but for an actual disease variant, if you will. Okay. So I don't know if there's a way to combine those technologies, but that sounds like that might be interesting to see, you know, where where COVID's being tracked and, you know, where the concentration of COVID cases are. I imagine there's technology that can do that or maybe predict where there might be potential outbreaks or risks of outbreak. Um, I would think that technology exists, just certainly with AI and and uh, predictive analytics and stuff like that, I, I would think there's mm-hmm. there's got to be ways to do that. But to answer your question, though, I don't know. I, I haven't seen that. Um, you know, most of my experience with healthcare has been more on the EHR, you know, the electronic health mm-hmm. records and supply chain management and some of the more, um, you know, traditional uh, healthcare technologies. But I suspect that these types of emerging technologies that you're talking about are going to become more and more increasingly important to uh, some of these healthcare providers throughout the world. Yeah, I think the the thing that always triggers my skepticism is just how accurate are they? You know, we've seen a lot of specific healthcare type of tests where we're talking about 65% accuracy, those types of things. So if you're getting, um, you know, not an accurate result, how is that? Is that hurting or is that helping? Right. It's great to see new frontiers of technology. Um but in genetic testing, I know there's been lots of talk of these big pharmaceutical or medical device companies trying to push out something that might not be ready yet. So just understanding the need and and arming doctors kind of with that organizational change conversation of this is a great test, but we have to remember the accuracy um, and, and what we could get as far as results. Because when you're dealing with human behavior, obviously that can be a very scary and vulnerable conversation. So definitely interesting, but a walk before you run type of mentality, I think. Um, Definitely very cool on the research side though for COVID-19 and those different variants. Yeah, I'll be curious to see if the, um, you know, speaking of human behavior, you know, you're talking about a topic that's been highly politicized throughout the world. And so you wonder, are there parties and different stakeholders, whether it's governments or the healthcare providers themselves or the end patients or, or consumers that maybe don't want that data or that technology to exist because it doesn't fit a certain narrative? So that's the other thing is, that, you know, whether, could there be resistance in the industry or from regulators to adopt that kind of technology because it's so pure, for lack of a better word? And, and you know, would there be a a need or a want to not have that sort of transparency or that that clarity 
in the data? I don't. It's more of a question than anything, but I could see that becoming a, a sticking point or a point of resistance for for uh, organizations adopting that sort of technology. Yeah, it's like you kind of know where I'm going in all of my articles today. Um, speaking of of government, I wanted to bring up a, a very hot topic right now, um, specifically when we talk about Europe and the U.S. and specific sanctions on Russia because of the current climate on the Ukrainian border. And we talk a lot about sanctions in our, our, our current political climate of what that might mean if Russia, say, invaded Ukraine. But something that I didn't know was that we, uh, as, the, um, as the U.S. government, can provide technology sanctions. So basically, that's going over and saying any American software, any American patent, any American system that's based in America there's no access to. It's removing um, a lot of the data hosting if it is hosted overseas or in a different European country, what that might look like. And I, I was really curious when I heard that to get your reaction to that, just because you, you know um, software vendors so well, and I can't imagine going to, say, Oracle as the U.S. government and saying, oh, by the way, you can't have any operations in Russia and then be like, okay, <laughs> you know, like, um, we're not going to do that. And I think that's the, the, the thing that they're trying to convince these vendors on more of a, a patriotic level to not support that Russian business um, with technology sanctions. So I wanted to get your reaction to that um, and see, you know, what you thought about how vendors or the overall community would react to that. We're, we're covering the whole spectrum of controversy or potential controversy today. We've got politics. We're talking uh, geopolitics here, and uh, soon maybe uh, we can get to religion here if we have time. Uh, really, really spice <laughs> things up a little bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, though, I, I think it does raise a bunch of conflicting questions or conflicting points of view um, that you know I could probably argue either side. But you know, one is the you know is it. Is it is it right? And I use I use the word quotes for that. Is it right? Is it ethically moral? Whatever you want to call it, for any government to limit, you know, what a who or what a business sells, provided that the product's not illegal, of course. But you know, like a technology provider that provides something that can help organizations, is that right to limit who they can sell to or not? Um, is the patri potential pra uh, patriotic view is that do that outweigh the potential downside? So I think it's a uh, you know, it's just a, more of a question than anything. And then the other thing is, you know, when you think about, I know equality and uh, uh, just just equality in general is becoming, you know, as, as, especially in the U.S. and other parts of the world, equality is becoming, um, it's always been important, but it's just sort of a, a, a topic we're revisiting and, and diving into in recent years, it seems like just where our society is. So it, it raises the question of, you know, should there be winners and losers or people that do or don't have access to technology just because they're based in a country that um, maybe doesn't agree with another country? Um, so I guess I don't, I don't have a good answer for you. I honestly don't have a strong opinion on it either. I just think that there's very distinct trade-offs and just like most decisions that you have to make regarding technology and digital transformation, like we talk about in this show, uh, you, I guess you just have to prioritize what's most important to you and take a stance based on that. And honestly, I hadn't thought through this uh, topic, um, but it's a very interesting one that I don't think has a clear answer. Yeah, yeah, I just, I had never heard of technology being almost weaponized in that way or being leveraged 
in that conversation when we're talking about diplomacy. I think the main trend we see for 2022 is just the government needing the technology. And we've kind of seen that dynamic play out in a variety of ways with big data, big tech, and the legislation around that, um, you know, and, and really kind of catching up from the process side of how does the government process meet the emerging technologies, which is, you know, a, a bigger conversation just in general. So yeah. with that, we'll, we'll end on a, a lighter note. I know you love the guessing, guessing games. <laughs> yes. so Especially when I bomb have, out. It's probably more yeah, right? for you in the audience than it is me, but uh, that's what we're here for. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we have a Forbes article here that outlines the top 10 tech trends that will transform the world in 2022. And so I wanted to see if you could guess a few of them, um, because you've talked about them as before as well, and then maybe we could uh, go through a few others that we haven't. Are you asking me to guess all 10 of them? That's, that's a big I'm asking you to guess a few. So let's okay. see where you get. Like if you get a bunch right, we'll keep going. But if you get all of them wrong, <laughs> you know, I don't want to embarrass you. Or Once I start striking <laughs> out, that's when we'll move on. Yeah, yeah. So, and these are specific technologies that are changing the world or types of technologies that are changing the world? So it's just, it's trends in technologies that are, are, are the top 10 that the, they have profiled. Okay. So I'd say, you know, artificial intelligence, you, you brought that up. I'd say that's got to be in the top 10 somewhere, maybe up toward the top, top three or five. Is that, is that pretty high up on the list? Yep. That's pretty high. Okay. Um, I'd also say, uh, trying to think of what the right word is, but anything to do with e-commerce or uh, uh, kind of automating the customer experience, uh, kind of the customer facing technologies, e-commerce, any, anything like that in the, at the top of the list? Not in, not in that way. It's not in here. Well, Forbes is wrong then. I mean, that's definitely got to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. And artif artificial intelligence is number four. So okay. there's um, a couple above that that are more very, very general. What about um, like machine learning or? robotic process automation. So it has like virtual reality in oh, yeah. here, um, more on kind of the consumer side as opposed to the business side, but, um, you know, still high on the list. What about open architectures and open source, things like that? Is that one of the, one of the 10? It has, um, like, um, autonomous technology. So basically talking about how your phone is now your computer and 10 years ago your phone can do more of than what supercomputers can do 10 years ago so kind of on the the same lines um but they have things also like new energy solutions rounds out the list at number 10 which you've talked about a lot in just the overall evolution of the energy industry um they have nanotechnology and material science, which I thought was a, a pretty interesting one. Um, car batteries, making solar energy more affordable, that type of thing. So along the same lines of like material sourcing that are more eco-friendly. We talked mm. a lot about gene editing technology um, in our last one and, and that synthetic type of biology. Um, 3D printing is in here, which I thought was kind of interesting and just mm. talking about the traditional methods to streamline manufacturing product processes as opposed to trying to battle a broken supply chain. And then I think these two 
kind of go together and things you've always talked about is um, big data and overall digital trust. So making sure that data is utilized in a new way and then also the datification of businesses. Datification is the word of the day, just in case you were wondering. Datification, um, good to know. Yeah. So obviously um, huge contributors to operational excellence and leveraging data as a part of your business strategy. Um, and then the last one, which is actually number two on the list, because you guessed number one, is just the connectivity. So, you know, the, the Internet of Things, um, Industry 4.0, those types of things that everything, essentially from your thermostat to your toothbrush to, you know, your car to your everything is, is connected. So just some, some trends to kind of round out and kind of set the stage for your conversation with Norbert, because I know you guys are going to cover some trends as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, I choked under the pressure and missed most of those that now seem obvious now that you went through those. What, what was number one again? Which one is number one? Number one um, was the ambiguous computing. Oh. So just saying that computers are all around us, wrist cars, gotcha. household appliances, that type of thing. So again, these are super general. Who thinks of these terms? I always wonder, like, who, who came up with that word, like, datification and, um, and would you say ambiguous technology? I've never heard that phrase. Ambiguous computing. Or ambiguous computing. Mm -hmm. Someone's got too much time on their hands. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but great, you know, now we've got more trends to talk about, which is cool. And I agree with them, by the way. I mean, everything you're saying in general, aside from the buzzwords or the, the, the weird, cool name that it's given, um, I agree with the general underlying concepts, though. It makes, makes a lot of sense. So it's super interesting. Well, one, yeah. one thing I want to find out, though, speaking of Norbert, and we'll, we'll take a quick break and we'll come back to him. But when he's on the show, I want to ask him about, uh, we're certainly going to talk about trends, but one of the things I want to get into as well is just understanding sort of the reality of what he's actually seeing in the research of what companies and organizations are actually leveraging versus what software vendors are developing. Because I think, you know, you're starting to see a bit of a disconnect in the industry where, you know, AI is a good example or... Um, you know, some of the other trends you talked about, they're cool emerging trends that might be a little bit more mainstream in three, five or 10 years, which is why mm -hmm. it's an emerging trend and why it's you know, sort of forward thinking. But you kind of have to back up and look at, well, in reality, what's actually happening today. And that's what I want to see or maybe dive into with, with Norbert in his, yeah. his research as well. Um, so we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have Professor Norbert on the show uh, from University of Potsdam in Germany. Um, and we'll dive into some of the research he's done over the years, over 20 years of doing research. I think he's uh, studied about 2,000 different uh, ERP implementations and digital transformations dating back to the, I think, the late 90s is around the time he started, right around the time I started in the industry as well. Um, so we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or 
download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 51. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, as well as all the audio podcast platforms like Google, Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, Pandora, etc. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can you can find us there. Um, excited for our next guest. Uh, this is a guest that I, I met uh, not too long ago in Germany. Um, I was speaking at a conference that he hosted and facilitated. Um, in the um, Germany area. And um, in my time there, I, I learned a bit about his background and his research and some of the interesting things that he's doing in the industry. So I thought it'd be a great opportunity to have him on the show to talk about some of his quantitative research and also to provide us a, another global viewpoint that looks outside of where Kyler, you and I are, and looks to the European region in particular, um, and looking at some of the differences between digital transformations in different parts of the world. Um, and we, we have a global team, we have a, an office in Europe, um, but it's always good to have other people from outside the company, our company, uh, to be on the show as well. And that's what, exactly why we wanted to have Norbert on the show. So with all that being said, uh, Norbert, thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you very much, Eric. Thank you for inviting me to this uh, live stream. Absolutely. And conversation. First of all, maybe just to, um, I haven't said much about your background, I, other than the fact that you're a professor and you do research, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself, where you teach, uh, what your background is, et cetera. Yeah, of course. I, I, I'm an engineer by study, and uh, there's a noise somebody mentions. Uh, I don't know what the noise is from. Um, and then I needed a job at the university, and I went to computer science. And uh, I stayed there for a couple of years. I um, finished my PhD, and then I got tenure at another university. And uh, then, and all the time, I did some consulting around ERP and uh, all other business information systems, but only uh, when a customer would call me and say he had a very difficult problem that other consultancies could not solve. So I came into the consulting area, and uh, 10 years ago, I founded my, my own uh, consulting company, Potsdam Consulting and Advisory, and... Uh, I think uh, our insights, and I will come to research and to the combination of research and practice in a minute, um, especially when you ask me some questions about that, um, our special insight is uh, that um, we look at the technology, so what is actual to current technology, uh, but we are not computer science guys because we do not ignore people. We do not ignore users, managers, middle managers, and so on. And we think additionally that the process, the business process, the value generating process is also quite important. And so we, we, we have this triangle and we, we always see in research and in um, consulting the, the sides of this triangle. Right. Right. So, you, so you've been in this space for quite some time. You, you're a yeah. In addition to your consulting, you're also a professor at University of Potsdam, 
Um, what what courses do you teach there? Maybe tell us a little bit about your academic oh, side. Oh, your... yeah. Well, yesterday I I I, I taught uh, both sides of um, of the scale. Uh, first, uh, for for beginners, uh, business administration <clears throat> and information systems beginners, I taught some uh, SQL structured query language, very um, basic. Uh, instructions and uh, then uh, later on for our master program uh, i told architectures of um, uh, business systems of information systems in business so these huge landscapes that huge companies like uh, the telecom companies the airline companies car manufacturers have hundreds of different information systems and how to manage in practice these information systems to to um, keep pace with technology advance and uh, yeah well with the, with the business advancements so that's uh, both sides of the scale uh, I taught uh, yesterday the same uh, morning yeah great so you've, you've got a pretty varied background ranging from detailed beginner technology sort of yeah. uh, te technical courses all the way to some of the more strategic yeah. stuff which yeah, yeah. We'll talk yeah, about it. exactly exactly that makes uh, the the profession so so interesting and we have the saying in germany if you can do it then you should do it if you can't do it then teach it and uh, sorry to say that if you can't teach then go into consulting so uh, i'm in all three areas i'm doing and i'm also in uh, consulting and sometimes i also teach Here we are. yeah so okay um <laughs> So, so quick question for for you then. Um, and sorry to interrupt. I lost my feed for a second there, so I, I missed part of what you said. But I wanted to, to ask you a, a quick follow up question on the um, uh, on the ERP Congress, which is the event that I yeah. met you at for the first time in person. This was the event in October of 2021, and you asked me to speak yeah. at that event. Tell us a little bit about ERP Congress in Germany and sort of you know what what was the impetus for that, and then we'll get into some of the. Uh, questions about your your research after that yeah Th thank you for that question we organize this congress uh, every year as a, a event as an event for around the the erp prize competition we hand out an award every year for some of the best erp vendor companies and the the best erp products in in europe or in in the german-speaking countries at least and um, this is um, there, there's a fight every year of um, um, to get this uh, award to be awarded with this this um, uh, thing. It's like an Oscar for the ERP industry. Um, Pretty big deal. And uh, yeah, <laughs> around this um, this uh, award ceremony, we organize a conference and uh, invite some famous keynote speakers uh, like you, Eric, uh, in, in the last year. And we try to inform uh, neutrally, so without uh, taking any sides, what is happening in the areas of technology, uh, what, uh, what should um, companies do when they have a problem with their existing ERP system or when they want to go into new businesses or want to find out what's the, what's um, uh, the advantage of using AI or uh, what, whatever big data or an analytics or something like that. That's the it's, it's a two day um, event, uh, and it uh, yeah we are a little bit exhausted afterwards, but it's uh, it's a very good event because it's the the main German ERP event you can name it that way. 
Okay, great. Yeah, it was a it was a great event, and um, even though there was a lot I didn't understand because so much of it was it was in German, it was very good content from what I could uh, gather out. Oh, thank you very much. I had Google Translate open the entire time so I could enter words. Oh, very good. Translate to English because I don't speak German. Uh, But it was a very good, um, very good session. I enjoyed it, and it was it was fun to meet you and, and other team members there too. Um, so I guess to start, um, and actually I'm going to ask the audience a question or ask them to respond to this real quickly, and then I'm going to jump into the questions I have for you. But for the audience, those of you that are, that are watching this live, I'd love to hear, you know, if you think about ERP and digital transformation research or benchmarks or data, what, what kind of data would you be looking for, you know, as far as just things that would be of interest or topics of interest or data sets that might be interesting to help uh, provide some lessons to your digital transformation project, wherever you might be in your journey. I guess that's more of a question for the audience because I'd love to see kind of what what metrics would they expect to see or what what sort of metrics would they be interested in seeing from your data, assuming it exists. Um, yeah. So while the audience is a- answering that question in the, in the live chat here, um, question for you then is is maybe just give us a little bit of, of, of an overview of some of this research you've done over the years. You know, what what does it look like? What it, what were you trying to find? What do you, you know, what, what was the impetus for the whole thing? Yeah, we we started 20 years ago when I uh, was invited to a big German car car parts manufacturer. He made the gearboxes and I I was asked, uh, we have a tiny requirement to change in our uh, information system. I don't say the name of the vendor, but it's one of the main vendors of ERP systems in the world. And it's not coming from the US, but from Germany. Uh, we have a tiny new requirement, a very tiny requirement. And it costs us millions, literally millions of uh, dollars or, or uh, euros um, to fix this uh, tiny requirement. Can't there be a more adaptive? We, we coined the the word adaptive or changeable uh, enterprise system that is much easier to uh, adapt to new requirements. So that was our first um, uh, task in, in research and we came up with a lot of ideas how new architectures of ERP systems should be um, provided, but uh, to to make it short, uh, none of nearly none of these ideas is um, made it into practice because we have this uh, relational database um, paradigm and uh, we have some applications uh, running on application servers and the the data models grow and grow and grow and the data itself also grows and so. So the systems are becoming complex and more complex and even more complex. And when you read about um, uh, missing success with uh, implementing new ERP systems, that's partly also a problem of the complexity. And some, some, there are even some people outside that think interfaces between different systems are bad and you should try to integrate everything into one single system. Uh, that mm-hmm. I, I don't know whom that helps, uh, but uh, it does not help uh, conquer or even manage the complexity. So that was the, f- the first task. And then we started another thing that we are continuing to do. We count 
beans, not, not beans, but numbers of um, installations of ERP systems in the German-speaking market. German-speaking market is about 120 million people, so it's not, not very big, but a lot of small and medium-sized ERP vendors are located in, in these German-speaking countries. I mentioned one, I didn't mention it by name, but uh, I mentioned it by um, um, the place of birth in Germany, in Waldorf, Germany, one of the big uh, vendors stemming from there. It's, just, it's a huge one, the SAP, but there are many more than 300, 400 smaller ones. And then later when we looked into other countries, we see these small vendors in, in nearly every other country, whether it's South Africa, it's the UK, it's the United States. You, you can sustain an ERP business as a vendor when you have 30 to 50 people working for you. Then it's even then it's sustainable. It will it will not grow and it will not um, adapt all new technologies and business opportunities very fast. But you 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 can survive, and so we have the situation that we have three hundred different ERP systems, and that's part of my consultancy to find out which is the best uh, long term. Long term means at least for ten years for for my customers. Yeah, and on the other hand, um, perhaps we, we will come to that uh, as well. On the other hand, um, the vendors are also the, the small and medium sized vendors ask me and my team at the university. I have about uh, 45 people running or uh, working for me at the university and they ask me, we read about new technologies like, like AI. Now, now the main technology where what I can overview, the, the, the ERP vendors um, make some, um, some investments in, the main technology is AI, artificial intelligence. So they, they desperately try to make more use of the huge amount of data they, they collected. And, but we, we see, um, and we can come to it in a minute, we see that there are, of course, some, some other capabilities required, not only technology, not only developers, but some, some other um, capabilities are required. So this is, um, we see the technology, we see the process, we see the business advantages, all of the business disadvantages, and you, you prepared some very nice questions. What, what are the issues? What do I recommend? Perhaps we come to that later. Yeah. All right, very interesting stuff. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue the conversation when we come back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Professor Norbert. We're talking about some of his uh, research and findings based on his experience in, in academic research over the years. So let's jump back into the conversation where we left off. Well, I guess just to start then, you know, that's a helpful overview of sort of the two 
threads are the two main drivers of, of why you started this research and what what problem you were trying to solve or what questions you were trying to answer. But when you look at um, just ERP implementations, digital transformations in general, what were some of the, Yeah, you've been doing this a long time, but what are some of the biggest findings you have, whether they're quantitative or qualitative findings from, from your research? What are some of the yeah. biggest so, lessons? Uh, we, we can um, distinguish several phases. In the first phase, it was just um, automation. No, it was not even automation. It was just bringing manual processes to computerized processes not not very much automation but you wanted to have your your data on a computer to be able to be accessed from anywhere and uh, uh, from more people than before that was the first phase um, that went till I, I would say the early 2000s so then there, there came a phase of consolidation uh, because there was not so much um, um, innovation in the ERP area, more functionality, yes, and more uh, more specific data models, yes, but but no innovation. Then many managers in companies came to the conclusion ERP is quite expensive, and we can cut cost on ERP. We can um, lift. Um, we can. We can. We, we do not need um, a maintenance contract. We we do not need upgrades anymore. We do not need uh, qualified people in our company. But we can always call India for uh, support. And um, this is the second phase. We see that a lot of um, competitive advantage vanished in this period of time and since i would say three to five years we have the third phase the, uh, and this is the taking the erp system as the backbone of the business information processing and trying to implement uh, innovation like ai like big data like um, yeah analytics and, and so on and um, uh, but not only into ERP, but in, in other systems connected to the ERP landscape. And this is the third phase. And this this makes more fun, of course, because if you always have cost-cutting discussions, that's that's no fun at all, because it does not end with the vendor. It also comes to you as, uh, as a consultant. But if you can, if you see companies that want to spend money to improve their competitive ability with IT, then the fund starts and then uh, some and, and then corona came the covid virus then uh, in some companies the fun just stopped again but uh, we 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 have some some e-tailers so so e-commerce uh, retailers um, that that did very well during uh, the covid uh, pandemic and uh, they spent tremendous amounts of money to improve their competitive ability and their to to make their processes better and uh, that's the third third stage well yeah your <laughs> your company is also <laughs> named but this is uh, this is uh, a parallel i didn't think of before um, this is, stem, stems from our um, observation of nearly 2000 erp projects in the last 20 years in in the german speaking um, countries so these three stages and now we are in a fun state uh, on the one hand last sentence but on the other hand some companies that thought it is not important people that know of it are not important they don't do well now they have problems they have real real problems now interesting so 
so the three phases then you had the uh the first phase first stage which was the uh, sort of the initial automation second yeah, stage computerization i would call it computerization it's uh yeah okay. now we can talk uh, we, we can we can speak of of automation but in the first years it was just computerization yeah yeah just just taking then, manual processes and moving them yeah. to, to computers yeah second stage was cutting costs but potentially yeah. at the expense of also cutting value business value yeah and then the absolutely third now is the sort of the competitive advantages using digital to to further yeah. their business models what are in this third stage that you're seeing now in the last three to five years what what are some of the big findings i mean what what are um you know what are some of the trends or some of the the, the data sets or, or high level metrics that really stand out or jump out um you know from from your research um, yeah, I see the, the AI trend, uh, artificial intelligence trend is more a trend for vendors for now. It's not mm -hmm. where the, the customers, my customers, my, my customers from the industry ask me what um, can we, for what can we use AI? And I tell them, well, you, you need, you need the data, you need the models to, to, for prediction and you need the use cases and then you can start. And when we, but when we look at the data, it's uh, these master data management topic is uh, some some uh, topic that uh, does not work well in most companies. So they have very individualistic data sets, and um, AI in the ERP um, area doesn't work well with uh, very scarce data sets. The AI works well when you have millions of uh, unique uh, data, but not when, when you have uh, there a little bit and there a little bit and no, no bridge between, between it. So, so that's uh, one of the problems. What, what, uh, we have a question here in the, in the, from the audience about value, uh, the value of ERP and the value of these investments. So um, what, what, what we do, what we always try to do is to calculate the value of the investment um, we do this uh, of the erp or the it technology investment we do this uh, while we uh, compare the actual state with the old processes and the old functions with the intended state when we have uh, automated processes and when we, when we have all system functionality available mm. uh, because that is sometimes diff different when the when, when you use a, a system with a huge functionality you have more functions but system is sometimes also more expensive and on the other hand uh, you can get a lot of improvements like in the manufacturing and logistics when you use a smaller and, and cheaper system so and we compare this and when you compare this then uh, you always can come up with some productivity gains with um, the opportunity to reach more revenues or to cut cost on um, stock uh, stocks and uh, things like that like that and uh, that is um, yeah that is that, that there are some um, sums that are big so big means uh, six or seven figures and some are very small and of course no company uh, we investigate has uh, more than 20 uh, roi potentials in their processes but otherwise they would no longer exist when they when they had 100 or we 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 come we also we, we always go into the company with about 300 or 400 questions about roi um always, always covering one single functionality and uh, well 20 
turn out as valid and then we can um, sum it up and come up with uh, some uh, uh, information about the potential value and this is in, in, in one case the investment is 7 million over 7 years uh, seven and we can compare euro and US dollar here for, for, for this um, interview uh, 7 million in 7 years and um, the yearly um, return on investment is about 2.5 million euro so that means in three years um, your seven years cost are covered and then you you are not only even but uh, you are better than before this information is quite um, necessary for some of the companies because they have to report to boards or to owners or the publicly noted and and, and then they have to um, to to figure out to, to say to um, they have to yeah justify their investment in IT because money is always scarce and everybody in manufacturing loves to buy new machines because you can see the machine for five million even if the machine is not running you <laughs> at least have the machine uh, standing in your factory but uh, a new enterprise system a new IT you do not see anything you you see a new icon on your browser and this is two million euro for or two million dollar for a new icon that's quite expensive so you, you it's absolutely necessary that you need to calculate the business value and um yeah we we have some experience with, with that with the, with this calculating the the value uh, unfortunately not all our customers want to have us calculating the value some say well it's evident it's self-evident that we need a new right. system and then we calculate the cost or the when the vendor calculates the cost of the new system and then they say well it's uh, quite expensive and can't we yeah can't we come up with uh, another solution and then we wished we had calculated also the business value so business value is quite important that it's possible to calculate it but you need a little bit of experience for that so is that the the numbers you just mentioned the seven million dollar total investment and then the two point yeah. five million uh, yeah. return is that an average in your data set is that is that the average cost and ROI for for the average no or is that well that, that is it depends from from many factors it depends uh, as you know how many uh, users you have concurrent users or named users how many um, mm. uh, application consulting is necessary uh, so it's um, well um, I try to convince my business customers when there is an ROI over two to three years then the investment is fine because you have always an acceleration curve uh, in learning so you don't you don't you, you can't use 100% of your new system from day one but uh, you 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 you, you slowly uh, discover new uh, new new information there and new value and uh, but after one or two years you know everything what uh, is necessary and then you have the full potential there so so two years is fine uh, in some cases in very rare cases there is no business value Mm. Um, 
or not, not no sufficient business value but uh, some of these companies have um, neglected their IT their ERP for 10 to 20 years I I once mm. met a company that had no maintenance contract for 20 years 21 years no maintenance contract so that means they have a, a software solution that was probably invented in the 1990s uh, for, right. for Windows 95 and right. uh, and now we yeah we have different times here and uh, uh, they, they, they yeah they, there is no business value because the investment is now huge but it's nevertheless necessary so what percentage approximately if you had to what you, I don't know if you have this exact data in front of you or in memory but what approximately how many um, digital transformation and ERP projects do you think receive a positive ROI within two to three years, as you as you mentioned, in this third stage we're talking about? I know 10 or 20 years ago, maybe it's a different number, but more recently, what, what kind of uh, metrics are you seeing there? Looks like we just lost Norbert, so I'm going to give him a second to come back on here, and he's back. There he is. Yeah, I'm back. So, so I, I, I got your question, but... Um... Your question was, uh, how many of these projects have a positive ROI from the third stage? Well, unfortunately, um, uh, we, we observed post-mortem, not, not post-mortem, post-project 2000, uh, around 2000 of these uh, projects. But of course, nearly nobody wants to tell us uh, what was the investment. We, they, they only tell us what was, what was the number of um, licenses they bought. And, uh, but but nearly never they tell us uh, how, how much consulting effort they spent. So I, I, I cannot come up with a, with a key figure, how, how much is um, uh, uh, how, okay. success rate. You... But I can, I can say when it will be absolutely not successful when IT is a commodity, when uh, you don't build up knowledge in your company on, on ERP mm. and uh, when you are not bold in your decisions and fourth and last, when you do not hold to your initial objectives. So your initial goals, what you wanted originally to achieve with the new system. So right. when, when, when you don't do this, all, all of this, then you won't be successful. So you, so you see the correlation of what what yeah. not to do, um, and, yeah. and the impact it, the negative impact it has on on your on your outcome. Yeah. All right. Very interesting stuff. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue the conversation when we come back with more transformation ground control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com.
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Professor Norbert. We're talking about some of his uh, research and findings based on his experience in, in academic research over the years. So let's jump back into the conversation where we left off. Um, do, you, do you have a sense from your, um, from your quantitative and qualitative data of whether or not with, with new emerging technologies like AI, you mentioned before, yeah. where it's more of a thing for vendors. Vendors are more focused on AI than actual uh, end, end users, which I totally agree with, by the way. That's what we see with our clients as well. It's, it's yeah. very immature in terms of real use cases. Yeah. But with these new emerging technologies that have a certain price tag that go along with it, and even cloud solutions too, where you have ongoing subscriptions and sort of a higher annual ongoing cost, are you seeing a trend, either positive or negative, towards getting more or less of an ROI, even even though you don't have exact numbers because a lot of uh, companies aren't sharing the the exact cost yeah. or the exact benefit? Do you do you have a, at least have a sense of where the needle is moving? Is it go, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? What do you see there? Well, it depends how the project is conducted. When the project is conducted in a nice manner and uh, not everybody who has a wish or a requirement gets this requirement uh, implemented, then you can um, get a, a huge uh, ROI and business value. Um, especially when, when you stay to your original goals and, and objectives, what, what you wanted to achieve in, in, in the market. Um, but the problem is um, the situation, the environment is changing. Uh, you know, the, the um, uh, company management uh, changes, um, ownership changes, uh, the economic environment uh, might change uh, for, for some companies. We, we have some legislation in Europe, like these um, GDPR uh, topics that cost a lot of money and helps nearly nothing uh, for, for, for the customers so so it's it's not quite easy because the the subject of study the company and the ERP system does not stay in the same state for two years mm -hmm. or for three years if you right. compare the, the your companies uh, you, you you observe uh, from from 2019 which was pre-pandemic to 2022, you, you will find out that the organization has changed, um, the business model in some cases has changed, the products have changed, customer behavior has changed. So that's a, the problem problem of reality. Everything is changing. So it's, it's not so easy to put something in concrete and watch it. <laughs> Uh, right. for, for for two or three years. So uh, unfortunately, I cannot say uh, it's always forty three percent. That's right. therefore I'm too much professor to answer this. Uh, in, 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 <laughs> right. uh, you sound you're starting. You sound like me. I it, it depends, right? It depends on what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's uh, typically a lawyer would say it depends. Yeah. Right. Right. Or consultants or professors. I guess that's what we've established. Yeah. 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 yeah we all. <laughs> Um, so in the research you've done over the 20 years, whether, you know, I, I'll, maybe I'll leave you flexibility on how you want to answer this, whether you focus on the third, the more recent third phase or stage of ERP yeah. uh, implementations or whether you look more uh, longer term, what are some of the, um, the biggest surprises in, in the data? Like, at, you know, when you started consulting and then you do this research, yeah. what, what sort of jumped out as sort of a, a surprise to you or something you didn't know, maybe some big learnings? From, um, from we, we always ask um, the customers, uh, the, the customers that buy a new ERP system or use a new ERP system, what influences their decision. And of course, in the first years, 
functionality was on top functionality 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 and of course that's that's the reason you buy a standard software system because you want to have immediate use of a predefined functionality but what comes then in the early uh, days it was uh, um, of course uh, cost advantage and usability and things like that uh, because the older systems like these green screen uh, systems had not a very great usability for tasks you did not do daily for daily tasks it was fantastic i remember these united clerks at the gates at united airlines and you wanted to do a complete complex uh, operation of rebooking your flight and they clack 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 and in 30 seconds they were ready new boarding pass a new invoice collect your credit card and so on that was fantastic because they do it every day but for right. in, in erp you have a lot of um, tasks you do once a month month or once a year and uh, therefore usability was in need very much in need that has changed usability is no longer an issue but um, the architecture the technical architecture of the system is now the number two in mm. deciding uh, in decision making on a new ERP system and that was something uh, that I always I'm always a, an architecture guy but I'm a, uh, I'm a computer scientist by 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 my uh, PhD but most of the managers out there are no computer scientists but business administration people and now they also decide to go for the good architectures so we have to we as a consult we as consultants and also we uh, at the university have to come up with the judgment what is a good architecture not only for the erp as a single system but for the whole landscape of it systems uh, you have out there and that's uh, an, um, an interesting topic also for the next couple of years yeah that is very interesting i mean it it fits what, it, what I believe to be important, but it's interesting to hear that buyers of enterprise technology are viewing that as a very important number two yeah. criteria. Yeah. Um, what um, what are some of the other general trends? You, you talked a little bit about AI and you talked about how, uh, you know, the three different stages of yeah. transformation over the years. Um, you've talked about how uh, architecture is becoming more important. Technical architecture is becoming important in the evaluation process. What other trends are you seeing? What are some of the other trends that enterprise software buyers are potential yeah. <clears throat> There is an, a very interesting uh, gap between uh, what vendors want. They want to get their customers into the cloud and right. what the uh, customers actually do because they calculate um, and in many cases, more than I expected, they come to the conclusion that cloud is way too expensive so they, mm -hmm. they they do not go in that in that case they do not go the whole way to the cloud but they stop halfways and go for instance for hosting or housing or some other services in that area so they they don't they no longer do it for your, for themselves they, they don't have the the hardware in the basement and try to fulfill all the security requirements but um, sorry right. for uh, the noise here, uh, but uh, they, they don't go into the cloud 
like with completely new offers so some some offers like data storage or, or also analytics capabilities we will see it also with ai when the models the ai models will be available they will be in uh, in the cloud they they won't be ever available on the hardware in the basement of the factory but uh, with the traditional systems at least our our what we see in in Europe, it's not only Germany, it's Europe. Um, uh, we see customers are reluctant to go in in the cloud. That's sometimes an infrastructure topic, but sometimes sometimes it's a trust topic. But mm -hmm. sometimes, in, in most cases, it's a, a cost topic because the cloud. Uh, is cheap in the first year and in the second year, but afterwards it's expensive because the costs are the same every year, and a license is um, license is paid, and then you have usage of the license, you have maintenance contracts. But so so cloud is not so fast in the ERP business because ERP. I would not say this of CRM and of some other um, IT services uh, like uh, Office 365 and, and, and things like that, but for, I, for ERP, the cloud adoption rate is slow. Yeah. 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 And I think the, um, the vendors benefit more than anyone from this and, and their investors benefit yeah. because you get a, a predictable, sustainable revenue model that's very high margin. Yeah that investors like, vendors like it. And so therefore that becomes the talking point, which is cloud is better. Cloud is better, yeah. everyone's moving to cloud. If you don't move to the cloud, you're dying. So I think it's a really good uh, point that you bring up, which is, you know, you can go to the cloud if it, where it makes sense, but it doesn't mean you need to double down and just throw yeah. everything in the cloud right now because yeah, it exactly. costs. I'd be curious to see, I've always thought, and this is speculation or sort of a uh, hypothesis of what I think will happen in the future. You talked about that second stage of where companies sort of yeah. went from from computerization to then how do we cut our costs to kind of cut back yeah. on our, our uh, how much we're spending on IT. Do you think we'll see another phase of that after? So you get all these companies that are moving to the cloud and then they wake up one day and realize, wow, we're spending a lot of money on these subscriptions that we can't get out of. Um, do you think there'll yeah. be a sort of day of reckoning in three or five or 10 years where people will maybe shift back and maybe try to cut scale back their cloud contracts or move back to on-premise or do something different? Or do you think this is just where we're going? Uh, I think, no, I, I don't think uh, they will shift back, but there will be more competition uh, with cloud services because, because mm. cloud services are more comparable to each other. And um, the step uh, away from one cloud vendor or functionality vendor to, to a couple of vendors is, is easier when you are in the cloud because uh, the next right. uh, possible service provider is for, for some uh, bill of material calculation or, or uh, warehouse management is only one click away. So we will see a competition there. I, do, I, I don't think, that's my, that's my proposition. I don't think they, they will come back and uh, install right. ERP systems under their desktops, but uh, I, I, I think we will see more um, competition in the cloud uh, competing on some services yeah it'll start to drive some of that cost down yeah. so you get more options and yeah all exactly okay yeah that, that's interesting um what are uh you 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 alluded to this you you started to answer this uh indirectly related to another question but maybe i'll ask it more explicitly here yeah but that is Please. what what in your research what are some of the issues or challenges uh that organizations are struggling with the most in their ERP implementations or digital transformations? 
as I mentioned before, when IT is seen from the management as a commodity, like uh, electrical power, then uh, it comes to problems. So, um, and um, uh, it is, uh, uh, it influences the competitive ability in both ways. If you um, go forward with your IT, it influences in a positive way. But if you don't go forward, it influences in a negative way. And you create costs on, in, in, uh, in personnel, in, in management efforts, and also in IT maintenance efforts. And you can't cut these uh, without um, uh, giving you danger to your business processes. So, so this is uh, what, what, what I see in some of the managers' decisions. They have not yet seen that IT is not the same like telephone service or like uh, electrical power or gas, uh, but it's something different. It's something that has to be invested in and uh, also knowledge has to be um, collected in the company. And I always tell my customers in, in, in consulting, you can't rely on forever on me. You have to, <laughs> you have to right. find out something on your own. <laughs> right. Yeah. But only yeah. something, you know, not, not everything. Right. Right. I'm, so, so I'm, coming back to this, this cloud um, trend uh, question, I'm going to uh, share a question here, which is uh, from Malcolm on LinkedIn. He asked the question of uh, how many on-premise systems will there be in five years? Do you, do you have a, a sense of maybe a rough percentage or I know you, you you probably don't have data that predicts that but or maybe you do I don't know what, what are your but what's your opinion on that well we we um, uh, I, I told you that the um, transfer rate to the cloud is slow and I would say we have when I, I make a bold judgment now we have in the Europe in the German speaking countries I would say we have 80% 80, 80 of the systems are running on-premise. Uh, mm. When you also think that housing and uh, hosting is also on-premise because it's, uh, it's an individual system on individual hardware maintained uh, in an individual state of software. So it's, uh, it's only the, 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 the Ethernet uh, cable, the Ethernet connection is different, but it's, it's not cloud. Cloud means it's anywhere and um, it may not even be on a certain hardware. Uh, and, and therefore, I, I think 80% are on-premise now. And now you ask me how much of this. I would say 70% will be on-premise in, in five years. We, okay. we should meet, Eric, we should meet at least in five years and <laughs> <laughs> we'll speak about that uh, prediction. Yeah. January 2027, you, you're saying yeah. that be so 10% more will be in the yeah. cloud? Okay, yeah, only 10% more, yeah. Okay, that's very interesting. I may be wrong. I may be wrong, but uh, in the moment, I see adoption rate is quite slow and costs are very, very high. And uh, every manager can calculate the costs and says, well, what should, why, why should I do that? Where, where is my business advantage? Right, right. Yeah. All right, very interesting stuff. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue the conversation when we come back with more Transformation Ground Control. So for all you listeners of Transformation Ground Control, I wanted to remind you of a premier annual event that we host every year. It's called Digital Stratosphere. It's a virtual conference that we've actually shifted to virtual since the pandemic. And we're having our next Digital Stratosphere conference online, virtually, 
uh, February 8th through the 10th. So I encourage you to register for that. We're going to, myself and others from the third stage team will be hosting sessions, facilitating sessions about software selection, how to implement software, what some of the best practices are, change management, digital strategy, program management, all the stuff you need to know to make your digital transformation successful in 2022 and beyond. This event's for you. Registration's free. We encourage you and your teams to join. Um, if you're not able to join us live, which we hope you will, but if you can't join us live, we'll also have, uh, we'll make the recordings available to you. So be sure to register either way. Even if you can't join all the sessions live, you'll at least get access to the library of recordings. So I encourage you to check that out. There's a link below in this podcast, wherever you're listening or watching. Uh, there's a link below to register. And you can also just go to our website at Third Stage, and it's spelled T-H-I-R-D stage dash consulting.com at the top of the page you'll see an icon for registering for digital stratosphere so be sure to check it out digital stratosphere february 8th through 10th hope to see you there hello welcome back to transformation ground control i'm here with professor norbert we're talking about some of his research and findings based on his experience in in academic research over the years so let's jump back into the conversation where we left off so uh, you alluded a little bit to this last uh, a few minutes ago, but uh, but I'll, I'll bring up this question from Andre on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Question of uh, how has the pandemic influenced digital trends? Yeah, um, we we see a, a main influence, of course, in uh, thinking of work from home. Uh, some managers didn't want to have work from home before the pandemic, and we see it in the digitalization of the processes. So things that were never ever um, available before the pandemic are now easily done and implemented. I give you an example uh, what me astonished today. Uh, I'm working at a university. You know, university administration centers are never um, at the forepoint of, advant of, of, of um, innovation. And um, I had to clear an invoice and I got an email and I just had to click a link in my email and I could do this on my iPhone. So I could send, say, uh, this invoice can be cleared on my iPhone by clicking, by just clicking a, a, an email, a link on my iPhone. So, and that was a real advantage. And this public administration moved in only two years pandemic from we do everything on paper to we do everything digital now. So the, I, 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 I use hmm. this example, not because it's a prototype for doing business, but because even the most hard minded or, or no minded uh, no, uh, people at all now think what can we do better in the processes? How, how can we advance and digitalize the processes? And that uh, experience we see also in, in the companies and also this work from home paradigm we have this discussion all the time. You see Apple, first they should all work uh, again in, in the headquarter. And now they say, well, you may work two days at home. So, And, and we see it in the German companies as well, uh, that uh, uh, it, it does not depend to some extent uh, where the work is done. To some extent, it's quite important. So uh, we, we cannot cut uh, social uh, contacts uh, completely. We, I would say uh, two days at home and three days at the workplace might be good uh, for both of 
<laughs> for for the van for the employer and the employees. So so I see um, things uh, speeding up in the in the in the processes. Um, I see very huge strains on the infrastructure because uh, all these videos uh, 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 videos going on, and then you have to switch off your camera, and then. Yeah, yeah, then you are nearly dead. Yeah, you have a meeting, uh, an important business meeting with eight to ten people, and everybody has to switch off the camera. Then pff, it's you, 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 you can only work there when you know all these people very, very well. So right. and when you can listen to them and oh, this might be a little bit snarky, but but uh, you you can't do anything. So so infrastructure strain in in some areas it's a huge problem and. Um, well, the ERP vendors, we, we, uh, they have to do something with uh, robotic process automation, that, which is an automation on, on the desktop of the users. Um, that, but that has, that has nothing to do with the vendors itself, um, in my opinion. And, and that's what I see. Yeah. Sure. The straight. Sure. Oh, yeah. That's, that's interesting. That's very, very interesting. Um, what about uh, this question? Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna change this question a little bit. But the question is: Is the German cloud market affected by German legal requirements yeah. governing where data can be held and how secured? I would actually ask that question more globally because that, that's also a thing. And you know, if you work yeah. if you work for the United States government or you're a contractor to the United States government, you have certain data requirements and limitations, yeah. and privacy is becoming a big deal throughout Europe um, and and other parts of the world. So maybe just in general, how do you know, individual countries and their legal requirements um, affect uh, the, the cloud market in general. Yeah, it depends in which industry are in. Uh, if you are in a very highly regulated industry, um, then uh, there are some rules. If you are a state or government-owned entity, then you're, there are um, uh, certain rules. Um, some companies like like e-tailer or retailer are free of that and uh, they have to take care of um, customer data and and, and person uh, related data to, to, to single persons uh, but that can be done well that it has an influence yes it, it the cloud market is a little bit influenced by by that. I would not say that we have this European initiative um, to 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 come up with the European cloud solution, but um, this is called Gaia X. Uh, but it's um, well, it's an it's an initiative from engineers, and uh, you sh you should think from the user. You should not think from the engineering uh, uh, point of view. And uh, it's it's overcomplicated this this European cloud initiative. So uh, Amazon, Microsoft, and some some others, Google are doing uh, here a very good job, and uh, show us where the data is uh, in in Europe. They have all the data centers in Europe, and um, for for most of the not regulated companies, not no military things, no um, uh, drugs. Uh, I mean, uh, in a positive sense, drugs, uh, medicine, pharma, pharmaceutical companies, uh, for, for most of them, that's not a problem. Right, right. In my opinion. Always, this is all my opinion, you know. Sure, sure. Well, and it, sure. it's an important one just based on what you're seeing and the, and the way companies are shifting. I think that's where we're getting to is just how how's the com how are companies shifting and how are, uh, how's the economy shifting, how's re how are regulations shifting. And that's a, just a good reminder of all the different things you have to navigate and 
stay in sync with as you go through an ERP project or, or digital transformation. Um, so uh, just for quick, a question, I guess I'd, I'd ask you around, um, a lot of your research is based in, in Eastern Europe or the German speaking uh, countries within uh, yeah. Eastern Europe. But what what what's different in that part of the world when it comes to ERP implementations or digital transformations? What's different yeah. there, unique there versus other parts of the world or, or vice versa? Yeah, we, we, we sometimes see also smaller vendors from from other countries coming to the German market because they heard of uh, Industry 4.0 and all these nice technological advances and they also want to compete there. And then they, even very small um, ERP using companies generate a huge amount of specific requirements for functionality very specific functionality and then these uh, companies that come from very simple manufacturing sites and and uh, they say well oh no we we can't do that we, we can uh, make a custom function for you especially but that's no competitive competitive advantage when you um, have to create a, a custom functionality for your first german manufacturing customer so um we we are not very satisfied with um, good looking and fast working systems with not so much functionality. So so the, and also the data model. The data model is even more important. They the people want to store all kind of information uh, around their products, their customers, their machines, and so on, and. Um, yeah, that's they don't like it. I just had an American. I once had an American vendor, a smaller American vendor. No, it was even a huge one, but I don't say its name. And he was asked, "Please tell us, we have to make reports, monthly reports for the value-added tax we have to collect in Germany for the for the government." And please show us your functionality. Uh, we think you are from the United States or from the UK, and perhaps you have not this functionality in your uh, home country. So what do you think of uh, this uh, value-added tax report? And the, the, the vendor from UK or US said, well, we have a very good report generator. And if you need this functionality, you can create it on your own. And uh, he thought that would be a very good answer. But he was immediately um, out of the business because uh, that's such a basic functionality for, for all European, for European uh, companies, uh, EU European uh, companies, uh, except the UK, uh, that um, they, they don't want to create their own uh, report for the government. They want to have it as a standard functionality. And so, so the, mm. the, um, the requirements are quite complicated in most cases yeah that's part of the problem yeah with the german market now what about uh, speaking of the german market and this is a, another question that we could probably broaden to uh, other parts of the world or other cultures but how does the german culture affect implementation and adoption and how is that different than implementations in other countries or other parts of the world well it negatively affects implementation and adoption because uh, we want to have a complete clear picture of we want to have in the year 2027 and uh, that's uh, quite not it's not not quite easy uh, we're in an ERP implementation and um, 
people want to some some of my uh, uh, customers also have this approach of perfection they want to mm -hmm. have it perfect and they they cannot live with um, 85 or 90 percent um, perfection they want to have at least 100 percent and perfection and that is that is um, contraproductive that that mm. doesn't work well so on, on the one hand we we can create with very nice machinery and uh, also some very nice cars because we can uh, think two years uh, what the new machine or the new car would look like and then build it but that does not work in implementation uh, in erp implementation we have mm. to make it short we have to make quick wins after six months to nine months at least but then you have to show something and if you are preparing an implementation for two years and then you are as some companies were 10 years in erp implementation so that's ridiculous in my opinion so we we try to um uh, uh, use agile approaches uh, there and but you need you you need trust you you have to trust the vendor when you start with an agile approach well that's also difficult so i think it's um well german culture not always helps yeah and actually i was it's funny you brought up culture because i was going to ask you as a follow-up what so you're saying that german culture may not embrace agile in the same way that other no. world or other no. culture yeah. But I think in general, it's a good it's a good reminder, though, that whether it's a geographic culture or whether it's an organizational culture or, or a combination of both, you really do have to think about, you know, who are we as an organization and as a people? And how does that influence how we should be deploying new technology? Because I think a lot of yeah. people try to look for that cookie cutter, one size fits all best practice. But the examples you just you just gave are good examples of how that's not typically the case yeah that's that's not working and that's that's for, for nobody in in the uh, european market it's uh is this cookie cutter approach uh, a fitting approach no i right. I, I would say that's not no that's uh, absolutely not not valid it's even the other way around uh, when uh, somebody hears that his um his main competitor has a system that he nearly also wanted to implement then he immediately switches his decision to the other system to, to the number two in the in the uh, in the rankings because uh, he doesn't want to have the same system like his competitor right right yeah. that's interesting um well so that, so last question for you then um that i've got for you is um based on your research so far what advice would you give to an organization or a team that's about to start a digital transformation here in 2022? What's what some of the, from your research, all the trends you've talked about, the things you're seeing in the market, what, uh, what yeah. should people Okay, favor quick wins, acquire knowledge, uh, be bold in your investments and hold to the original objectives when you started your project. That's... Uh, in in one in in one sentence my my advice that's great yeah that's a good a summary and those are things you mentioned uh earlier in the in the conversation as well so that's super super helpful um yeah thank you very much all right good stuff thank you for being here professor it's good to have you on the show and hope to have you again soon a lot of good stuff we, you shared today and i feel like there's even more good stuff we didn't have time to get to so we'll definitely have to have you back on the show but in the meantime, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back and dive into some of the findings and some of the interesting points from that conversation. We'll do that as soon as we return from a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Sit,
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name's Eric, I'm here with Kyler, and we just had Professor now on the show and we were talking about uh, some of the academic research and trends and things he's seeing in the industry. What were some of your takeaways or aha moments from that conversation, Kyler? Yeah, absolutely. I love the, the phases essentially that he laid out, you know, phase one, the manual process and technology. Phase two is kind of this, the consolidation. And then phase three was really that ERP is the backbone of the business. And I wondered if you've kind of seen almost a phase four, or if he has, that companies are, are often investing in more best of breed technology, um, as opposed to thinking that an ERP system is the backbone. That was kind of my reaction to, oh, I wonder if that is evolving as well. Um, and I wanted to see kind of what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I think we are seeing that in the industry, primarily because for a couple of reasons. One is because the technology is changing so quickly. I think it's really hard for any single ERP system to keep up with all the trends and evolving needs of different industry niches and verticals. Um, so that's part of it. And then I think that that magnitude or pace of change has only accelerated since the pandemic. You, you have organizations now that have totally different needs or requirements uh, than what they j had just two years ago prior to the pandemic, especially when you look at industries like retail or healthcare or some of the other industries that are more affected by uh, by this than, than others. Um, and then the other thing is, that, you know, the, the barriers to entry. I mean, the, the cost of creating a software company or creating a very niche specific solution that solves a specific problem, uh, those barriers to entry are a lot lower now than they have been in the past. And I think those barriers are continuing to come down over time. So what that what this all does is it creates this environment of high competition, uh, a lot of different options in the marketplace, uh, an inability or a struggle for the big, massive, one-size-fits-all ERP vendors to keep up with all these changes. And it just creates, it's constantly creating a bunch of new openings and niches for some of these smaller providers. So I think, you know, organizations really need to get out of the mindset of thinking they're going to find a single ERP system to do everything they want. Even if they do have a core ERP system that might do 70 or 80% of their business, you've got to figure out how you kind of close that gap and address some of those more, um, call it the customer facing or competitive advantage types of business processes that are less likely to be accommodated by a single big ERP system. And on the, the same, along those lines, um, you and Norbert had kind of chatted about the challenges of the support systems when it comes to these more niche systems or even systems that aren't as local. He, you talked about the German community and how there were a lot of systems that you had never heard of. And mostly he had said because of the lack of whether it's 
it's vendor support, technical support, or SI support for a lot of those other systems in the area. Is that something that um, is, is really kind of true for the rest of the world besides the United States? I think it is. I mean, I think different parts of the world have different um, different software vendors that are stronger or weaker uh, in, in those parts of the world. Um, I guess with Germany, I didn't realize until I was there and I got to know a lot of the you know software vendors that he was talking about. I got to know him and others that are very familiar with the German and the Eastern European market in general. Um, but I guess I didn't realize the, the extent to which there, there is a lot of diversity in that particular market compared to Latin America or to Asia Pacific or other parts of the world. And I, I know like in Asia Pacific, I know we've, we found a lot of vendors there that are very unique to that, that um, industry or to that region, partly because the, the pricing model needs to be different. I mean, you can't charge US or Western European type uh, prices and have it make any sort of economic sense for you know, for a country that's based in a developing country where there's a lower um, cost of living and, and, you know, exchange rate issues and whatnot. So so I think that, you know, you, just the disparity in the, the geographies in terms of demographics, type of industry, um, all that sort of stuff adds up to a bunch of diversity in the types of uh, software vendors that, that you're, you're seeing. I know in Germany, for example, because they have so many automotive-related companies in that space, they, there tends to be a lot of vendors that sort of specialize in auto part manufacturers or automotive manufacturing, um, where that's probably not as big of a deal, you know, in other parts of the world. So, um, so yeah, I think that's, it's something to be aware of. You, you want to look globally, but you also want to look locally as well, as far as, you know, what your options are. So what if you have a global organization or an organization that really their their needs meet a specific software that you're going to recommend, but there's not a ton of local support for that. Is that a huge consideration when you're going through the selection process? It can be. Um, you know, there's ways to mitigate that risk or that, that deficiency or problem. One would be to build some competencies um, in-house as much as you can. I mean, if you can build competencies either by hiring someone that knows a certain technology well or teaching people on your team to learn the technology really well to where you're not as dependent on outside parties. And I'd say that's a general best practice just overall is just in general, anything you can do to build your own internal competencies to help uh, provide that internal technical capabilities is generally a positive thing. Um, that's, that's one way to, to navigate that. Um, you know, the other way is to, you know, in the global world we live in, especially in a post-pandemic global world, it's not as important that you have someone that's in your backyard or right down the street to support you. Um, you can get support uh, remotely a lot easier now than you could, you know, decades ago. So I think, um, yes, it's important. Um, you want to know that the resources are out there um, supporting you, but I, provided that they, uh, you can find resources that speak your language and align with your culture, um, it's not as important where those resources are as just whether or not they speak your language, align with your culture, and know the know the stuff you need them to know. Absolutely, you know that makes a lot of sense. And I know Norbert talked a lot about kind of business processes and the the um, importance of really kind of diving into each part of your process from really conception to completion. Um, and I wondered if if you had in your either your experience. Um, on global clients or anything like that, 
discovered that supply chains can be localized when it comes to global clients as well. There can be different challenges when it comes to working in Latin America versus working in Asia, those types of things. Is that kind of the same thing as mapping out the process or business intelligence opportunities that he had mentioned on more of a global level? Yeah, it is, uh, or can be, you know, you certainly, you know, there's the internal processes, the things you do and, and how you do them or how you want to do those processes. But then you have sort of the external factors you have to take into account too, like your, uh, and I think you're alluding, I think this is what you're alluding to, but things like infrastructure. Um, if you don't have, um, access to a physical infrastructure that allows for a, you know, a, a more frictionless flow of goods, um, then that, you know, there's considerations there as far as how that affects your business requirements, uh, because you're probably gonna have a lot more workarounds and things you have to do differently because you have uh, infrastructure limitations. And, you know, just to give an example, it's been a few years now, so this may be less true than it was when I was last there. But in, in India, for example, um, a lot of manufacturing happening there, a lot of uh, low cost manufacturing plants. But when I was there, I remember the global company I was doing consulting for was having a lot of trouble just getting the product out of their manufacturing shop floor and to their warehouse and then ultimately to the either to their end customers throughout Asia or to a port where they would ship it to their overseas customers. So it's things like that you have to be aware of and think about, okay, well, how does that affect the type of technology we might need? It's not that technology is gonna fix that infrastructure limitation, but it means that you might have different processes or workarounds you have to work with given the fact that you have that, that infrastructure limitation. And then the other, speaking of infrastructure, the other big one that's not a physical infrastructure thing, but more of a technology infrastructure is just the reliability of, of cloud um, and internet connectivity. So if you don't have good, reliable internet connectivity, what does that mean for a potential cloud solution? What do you have for on-premise potentially as a, as a backup or a way to have um, more direct local access in the event that you don't have access to the internet? Um, all those things, you know, those are just a couple examples of how those uh, environmental realities should contribute or should be considered as part of your uh, business needs and requirements. Yeah, and I know some of our audience asked during your live stream if on-prem solutions will become obsolete in in the near future. And like you consultants do, you always kind of, it's depends situation <laughs> there. So it sounds like it's really regional based too when it comes to on-premise solutions and just the overall needs of the company. Um, for connectivity. Yeah, and that was I was floored by the part of the conversation with Norbert where he said, I've, I, I may have these numbers slightly off, but I think the order of magnitude is right. Um, but he said something to the effect of, you know, I asked what percentage in five years would, would have transitioned from on-prem to cloud. And he said, you know, it's 80% on-prem now. He thinks in five years, it might be 70%. Um, so he saw, you know, much more incremental adoption rate than even I was seeing. I've always been fairly skeptical of the cloud going back 10 years now. And even today, I'm still skeptical of it because I, I think it's there's a lot of limitations that people don't see or want to see. Um, but but he took it to a whole other level in terms of he he, was, he appears to be even more skeptical than me, but, but he's basing it on data and basing on what he's actually seeing in his research. So I, I found that very interesting. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's kind of counterintuitive to all of the media messaging around the cloud within the industry. Like we talk about 
our banking example in the beginning of this episode and that huge migration, even though it, it can be slow, in one of the most secure industries in the entire world, you would argue, yeah. um, and what that, that might look like. So definitely such interesting stuff coming from Norbert, and I'm excited that we get to partner with him at Third Stage and, and leverage some of his great research for our client community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll have to have him back on too and dive into more details. I, I was sort of uh, uh, overwhelmed by the the breadth of yeah. areas we, we could dive into. So I think, uh, you know, it'd be good to dive in more detail in some of those areas uh, the next time he's on. Um, well, good. Well, that that's a good uh, wrap up for the conversation with Norbert. And again, thank you for uh, being on the show, Professor. It's good to have you on. Um, and speaking of guests, we're going to take a quick break and we come back while Michelle Weiss from the third stage team. She's going to be on the show talking about how to evaluate and select the right technology for your organization. So uh, it's a topic we've we've covered uh, in other segments or other podcast episodes, but this is one, this will be the first time Michelle's been on, first of all, but second of all, she'll have a, a unique perspective that others just don't have, uh, partly because of her global uh, experience base and working with some of our, our clients throughout the world. So uh, we'll take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 51. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. And you can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, and all the audio podcast, podcast platforms that you might listen to us on. Be sure to subscribe, uh, leave us a comment, leave us a review, share the podcast with your colleagues, others that you might find, uh, others that might find this topic or these topics interesting. I'd uh, love to help get the word out. Uh, so we appreciate you sharing this and, and sharing your feedback on the show. So I'm excited for our next guest. We're going to play a clip that uh, of an interview that you had done previously, Kyler, with Michelle Weiss from the Third Stage team talking about uh, software evaluation and selection. So why don't we play the clip, and then we'll kind of come back and unpack some of that a little bit more detail. But let's cut to the clip right now. So Michelle, can you tell me a little bit about what it means to choose a new technology for your organization or maybe why companies might want to look at getting a new system? Companies using outdated technology or not utilizing technology properly may find that as they grow or become more complex, a strong technology platform will better enable them to succeed. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. I know a lot of the clients we work with here at Third Stage are kind of in that high growth type of phase within their business. So there's obviously a ton of technologies out there. 
Some can be really simple while others can be more on the complex side. What are some main considerations when selecting a new technology for your company? It is important that companies look into the future, at least three to five years, and also at their current processes. That way, when they select a system, they can find one that meets their current needs as well as those needs that they will have in the future. Absolutely, that future state is so important um, in, in that strategic alignment that I know you and your team help our clients go through here at Third Stage all the time. So is there a step-by-step -step process or, or methodology when it comes to software selection or figuring out how to choose the best option? Absolutely. I mean, that is our bread and butter, as you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I'll break it down into three major steps, and I'm going to call them document, evaluate, and select. Um, so what you want to do is document your current and future requirements and any major pain points that you have uh, mm -hmm. currently with the systems that you are using. Next, you would want to evaluate the technology solutions that are out there create a short list of those vendors. You don't want to be looking at more than possibly three at this point. And what you will do is you will list all of your requirements, send that to them, and then evaluate their answers. From there, some of them will be invited to do demonstrations. Each vendor is then evaluated on how they can meet your requirements and your business needs. And finally, you will select the software that best meets those needs, as I just said. However, no system is ever going to meet them all. That 80-20 rule that we all talk about a lot really applies to this step in the process. A system that can meet 80% of your needs is a good system. Excellent. I love how you broke that down into those three steps. That was a, a great way to kind of describe that entire process as I know it can kind of be complicated at times for a lot of our clients and a lot of our community here that listens to our podcast. So we talk a lot about ERP full systems or an ERP suite versus best of breed or bolt-on type of options. So how do you know if you need a full ERP system or a more of a best of breed CRM, um, HCM type of option? When evaluating on ERP, which is a very large system, what you want to do is select a handful of processes that are most important to your organization and evaluate those against your needs. You also want to document needs in other processes, such as maybe, let's say, human resources. And as you look at the system, see if there are some of those needs that can also be met through the ERP. If it's close enough, I would say, possibly try using the ERP for that process. If it is very different, that's when you would want to then break out into a best of breed for that particular process. So Michelle, what are the role of the requirements that you mentioned earlier in the episode within the software selection process? Sure, I mean, that is one of the most important things I believe in this whole process. Um, and they're there to help you determine which system best meets your needs. You want to document mostly the needs that make you different from all other companies out there or things that not all systems have. For example, let's talk about recruiting systems, just as that's mm -hmm. where my experience is. Most of them will have at least one career portal. 
So you don't want that to be a requirement to have one career portal. Yeah. What makes you different could be that you need more than one portal. For example, one for professional staff, one for interns, one for internal staff. And you do not want to assume that all proposed solutions have that capability. So you would want to make that one of your requirements. Excellent, Michelle. Thank you so much. That was great information. I know that competitive advantage that we talk about a lot too in that requirements building is so important. So we appreciate you taking us through that. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back to this conversation here in just a moment. You're listening to Kyler and Michelle talking about how to select the right enterprise technology for your organization. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Kyler and uh, Kyler's playing us a clip of a discussion she had with Michelle from our team talking about software evaluation selection. So let's jump back into the conversation. We kind of talked about the selection process and finding the best digital technologies for your organization. Um, but I'd really like to, to dig into what companies need to consider prior to that technology. Um, so can you take us through some aspects that our listeners should be thinking about if they are considering a new technology? Sure. I think the first thing is a clear understanding of where you are going in the future and how this technology will help you going forward. Um, this is a strategic alignment that needs to happen at the executive level. The next thing would be to identify if you have the resources, the time, and the money to do the project. Let me give you an example. If implementing an ERP, the implementation process can take up to 10 months and it will require your key and most experienced employees to be a part of it. They will need to dedicate between 50 to 75% of their time to the project. And you will most likely need to backfill those positions until the project is over. So the organization really must be ready to make those commitments to the project for it to be successful. That makes a lot of sense. Definitely that commitment is a huge piece of that. So I'm I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about um, vendors when we're talking about mm -hmm. the, the software selection process, because obviously they play a huge role and have a big influence over the project. So what should their role look like in the decision making process for selecting a new technology? Sure, I would say that um, first and foremost, you want to look for vendors that are really interested in understanding your business requirements and will help you understand how their software will help you with that. But you also want to manage the software vendors a little bit. 
If you don't, they may end up showing you what they want to show you and not what you need to see. This is why we create scripts for the vendors that specifically guide them through a demonstration of the areas that are important to you. Uh, we aim to have the vendors not only show you that they do something, but also how they do something. That's great. I know that's you know a main role of our third stage stakeholders in that conversation or going through that process with our clients. So um, a lot of the team here talks a lot about analysis paralysis when it comes to software selection. Can you kind of take us through what that means exactly and how you might avoid it? Um, I think analysis paralysis comes when the people on the selection team are not confident in their knowledge of these systems or various systems that they see all seem to do everything in your requirements list. So then it's hard to choose. I'll give you an example of one of my current clients. They decided to invite the top ERP systems to do a demo. They did not have requirements. They just let the vendors do the demo that they wanted. Once all those demos were over, they couldn't make a decision. Why? Because they didn't have anything to compare, you know, apples to apples, oranges to apples. They just didn't have anything quantitative to look at to see who won, right? <laughs> um, so they hired us to help them through a full-on selection process. We've taken them through creating requirements, um, sending out RFPs, getting demos, and they're almost ready to make a decision. Now, the other thing is that by hiring someone like us who has experience with the software, we're able to learn about the companies and also help them make this decision. Even through our process, you may find that two systems are good enough, right? They both meet that 80%, maybe in a little bit of a different way. At that point, I would say you might want to start looking at the vendor's culture, uh, possibly the vendor support structure or their implementation methodology. And sometimes those things is what will differentiate one over the other. Yeah, that's so important to that cultural fit. And, and speaking of culture, more from an internal lens, what are the role of maybe the executive leadership team in a software selection? Well, every software selection project must have an executive sponsor. It needs an executive that strongly supports the project and helps the team communicate the importance of the project to the whole company. Without this buy-in from this executive sponsor, it will be very hard to get buy-in from the rest of the organization. When they see support coming from the top, employees are more likely to embrace the changes a new system will bring. Uh, the last thing that an executive can do is support the allocation of human resources to the project. Excellent. I think that's so important to make sure that you do have not only the executive alignment right, but also the sponsor and, and the true leader of the project. So in diving a little bit deeper into culture, what is the role of change management when it comes to this side of technology transformations? Sure, I think change management is all about communicating to the organization. You want to communicate your plans to mitigate the concerns your employees will have when making such a change. You will want to make sure your employees are aware of the project, who will be involved, and how this might affect them and the organization. I'll give you an example for one of the companies that I'm working with right now. Mm -hmm. um, they're looking at 
an upgrade to their current system or a completely new ARP. So they have made sure to communicate to their IT team that were they to select a different ERP, those individuals will get training on the new software and that no positions will be eliminated. So that's going to prevent them from losing some of these team members if they hadn't been communicated to because maybe they're out looking for a new job thinking they're gonna lose their job. So all of this type of communication, uh, training for your employees to help them use the software uh, is really imperative and that's what change management is. Yeah. It sounds like that transparency from the top level down is really crucial to making sure your project is successful. Right. So thank you so much, Michelle. This was such a great conversation. We were so happy to have you today. Thank you for sharing all those great insights. If you had some um, recommendations for some additional resources for our listeners that might be interested in learning more about changing a digital transformation, or uh, digital technology, what would you recommend? Sure, well, we have the 2021 Digital Transformation Report out there. Uh, you can also visit our blog or uh, watch our YouTube channel. Excellent, well, thank you, Michelle. Another fun fact that I wanted to share with our community that is pretty unique about you is, is you help us a lot with our, our business in Latin America. You're actually from Costa Rica yourself. So I thought it might be fun if you said hi to some of our Spanish speaking community. Hola a todos en Latinoamérica. Muchas gracias por escuchar este podcast. Uh, si tienen alguna pregunta, por favor, contáctenme y me encantaría ayudarles. All right, good stuff. Thanks for that clip. We're going to come back and unpack some of the comments or, or topics we just discussed. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 51. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can uh, track us down on, on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, just about every uh, social media platform. And we post daily thought leadership and best practices related to digital transformation. It's all independent technology agnostic, so be sure to check us out on social media. Um, so, Kyler, you had that interesting conversation with Michelle. What are some of your takeaways or knee-jerk reactions to that conversation you had with her. Yeah, always always fun to catch up with Michelle. Um, for our listeners, Michelle is hyper-organized, so she keeps um, everybody kind of organized here at Third Stage and does a great job with that. And her talk about requirements kind of reminded me of that. So I wanted to ask you, I feel like requirements to me is still very confusing, so like lifting the veil on what that means for an organization. 
And she kind of talked about the importance of understanding what your business requirements are. So what if you have no idea what you like? You have a future state, right? But you don't know so much of the requirements of the technology. Is that something that's similar to business process mapping, where you kind of start at the beginning and just, you know, get everything out, kind of brain dump of what you want to be able to do? And then do the requirements then go to the vendor? Or how does that process work? Well, it's, I'd love to say there's some secret secret formula that only our team knows. Uh, that's not the case. It, it's more, it's not so much the approach, in, it's more in the finesse or the art of, of doing requirements definition. And so, you know, what, what I mean by that is, you know, be, having the ability to do a few things is, is important in, in requirements definition. One is is to ask the why, you know, why are you doing what you do? What's the intent? What are you really trying to accomplish? And looking past the what you do, um, because what you do is arguably broken. And if, if it wasn't broken, you probably wouldn't be looking at potential digital transformation initiatives like you, what you might be going through. So that's one is understanding the why, what is it you're trying to accomplish? Um, the how, you know, the, the how is somewhat negotiable because a lot of the, the technology will drive that. Um, the other aspect or the other art component of requirements definition is knowing how to prioritize and knowing, you know, the certain requirements that are more important than other words than others. So in other words, uh, not all business requirements and business processes and functions are created equally. There's some that are just going to be more important or at least more important to your digital transformation and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, there's also the need or the, the benefit of looking at your business requirements through the lens of what your strategic goals and objectives are to make sure you have that alignment. Um, it's also understanding your customer and your stakeholders internally to figure out, um, you know, how, how you can better enable some of those processes. Um, so I think those are some of the biggest things I'd say. And then I guess the final component is also understanding where business requirements are Certain, certain business requirements might be important to you as an organization, but they might be a commodity to software providers. So in other words, um, certain processes and functions can be handled really well by most software systems out there. Others can't be. So it's a matter of also understanding not just what's important to you or what your competitive advantages are, but also what are those big differentiators in the, in the systems in the marketplace. And that's where the reason I call that the the art of requirements definition or the finesse behind it, because so much of that is based on experience. The process itself, you know, doesn't look that different um, in terms of how you draw those out. Of, of course, facilitation is important, but um, the bigger factor is just more the, some of those uh, those nuances that I just described. Absolutely, and and in organizations within that process of defining those strategic goals. These requirements are building that target operating model. Is that right? It's part of the target operating model. Um, the other parts of it are not just the requirements, which are sort of, these are the specifications of what technology should be able to do for us. A step above that would be the business processes. So the end-to-end -end processes, and then you'd have your business requirements that sort of fall below that or, you know, the level below that. And then if you go up even a step above the end-to-end -end business processes, or, or actually not a step above necessarily, but more as part of the end-to-end -end business processes at that same level would be getting into the organizational roles and responsibilities. Um, who does what? Um, what are the different job designs of, of people in, that are touching the process? 
Um, and then that also uh, feeds into architecture and some of the technical requirements as well. So there's a lot of different layers and dimensions of it um, in there as well. But it is different. You know, business requirements are a subset of that future state operating model. Future state operating model is more comprehensive, looking at the process, the requirements, the organizational piece, technical, architecture, all that stuff. Absolutely. And so Michelle has kind of an interesting um, role here at Third State. She's obviously one of our very talented senior managers, but she also handles all of our Latin American business because she is um, a Spanish speaker. She's from Colombia. And um, I wonder how that's like as someone who doesn't speak Spanish to sit through those workshops with her. Obviously, we, we have a translator, but my, it must be kind of an interesting process to help select a software for a uh, an organization in which you don't know the cultural nuances or the language. So I wondered if you would kind of provide your experience in, in working with those more global type of organizations. Are you suggesting that I don't speak Spanish? No, <laughs> I, I guess I don't know. I've never heard you speak Spanish, but uh, no, I'm but maybe you do. I do not speak Spanish. Uh, that is correct. I speak French. I took two years of French in high school, but... Um, oh, very good. Yeah, I'm a little rusty, uh, just enough to... Uh, have French-speaking people make fun of my accent and my attempts to, yeah. my futile attempts to speak fluent French. Um, but what I'd say is, you know, language is certainly important and, and being able to speak a common language is important, which is why having people like Michelle that speak multiple languages or can help translate or speak uh, more comfortably with with uh, something other than your, your native language is so important. But there's also the cultural piece too, you know, so you want to bridge that gap with language, but you also want to bridge the gap with uh, the culture too, and just understanding the, not just the geographic or the national culture, but also the culture of the organization you're working with, which, which might be quite a bit different than the geographic or the national culture you're dealing with. So I, I think all those, what you're bringing up is just more of a bigger uh, need or thing, a requirement for a effective digital transformation on a global scale is just making sure that you bridge those gaps between language and culture and operational differences throughout the world and all that good stuff. Absolutely. And um, if you are a Spanish speaker, I certainly encourage you to download our 2021 transformation report, which is in Spanish that um, Michelle helped us put together. And then also um, Michelle has some Spanish videos on our YouTube channel too. So always um, a great to see that diversity on the team. Um, but great, great interview. And I think software selection is really a good time to bring it up in the new year as we're going back to basics and really kind of breaking down what businesses need in, um, in general to choose the right software for, for their business. Um, and engaging a partner like Third Stage or Michelle is always a great first step because it can do things of like lift the veil of, you know, requirements building and templates and deliverables and those those types of things. So it was definitely very interesting and timely to hear from her today. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, you, you certainly want someone that's independent and technology agnostic like Third Stage to help you with your digital strategy and roadmap, your software evaluation selection, but you also want someone that has that global perspective that can understand uh, different languages, different countries, different cultures, and has a team that can speak sort of a global language and, and interact globally. But even if you're not a global team or, or a global organization uh, or a multi-language organization, still having that, that global perspective can be extremely beneficial. So that's something to think about as you think about, you know, who can best help you through that process to help you define your, your strategy and roadmap for 2022 and beyond. So it's a, it's a really good point.
Well, good. Well, well, thanks for uh, all your uh, help here today with this podcast. I want to thank everyone for joining here today. And just a reminder, you can catch new episodes every Wednesday. Um, be sure to subscribe and, and provide comments and feedback on this podcast and share it with your colleagues. We'd love to get the word out as much as possible. And be sure to follow us on social media. If you just can't wait for that next episode of Transformation Ground Control, follow us on uh, LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram, wherever you're on social media, Twitter, whatever it may be, and uh, look for us there. And we put out daily thought leadership, blogs, articles, videos, all that good stuff so you can stay up to date on digital transformation trends and best practices in between episodes of this show. And uh, you can also check out our sister podcast too, which is called Digital Stratosphere. And that's one that you uh, host as well, Kyler. So I encourage everyone to check that out as well if you haven't already seen that one. So thanks very much for being here, everyone, today. Hope you have a great week, and we will see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. (laughs) 